Hello, I'm Tony. I'm Patrick. Welcome to another uh, section here of Cape to the Cross Apologetics. And we are working our way through uh, Kenneth Bohr and Robert Bowman's book, Faith Has Its Reasons. And now we're up to chapter seven here. We've kind of worked through most of the presentation of their classical approach to apologetics. And that's what we've been working on the last uh, few weeks here. And this is the last chapter that deals with the classical approach of apologetics. And what they want to do in this chapter is kind of now do a critique mainly of this particular uh, approach to apologetics. You'll recall that classical apologetics has kind of a two-step approach. They first prove that God exists. And then secondly, they show that the Christian God is the one that you should believe in. So that's kind of the basic idea of the classical approach. And uh, we'll, uh, uh, what we'll see here in uh, today's um, uh, portion uh, of this particular uh, chapter is now they're going to give some strengths and weaknesses of this particular uh, approach. So let's uh, let's dive right in, Patrick, and kind of see how, uh, you know, what they have to say about this particular approach. You, you'll also recall that there are four approaches that they're working, this book works through, right? So it's a it's a mammoth book. It's probably an inch thick or something, right? That and they're working, through, you know, through these various approaches, uh, uh, the classical approach, the evidentialist approach, the what they called reformed or presuppositional approach, and then uh, the uh, fideistic approach. All right. So what in this uh, concluding chapter on this classical approach, uh, they tell us that they're going to summarize the model or the paradigm for apologetics. And then they're going to illustrate its use in practical apologetic encounters and then consider its major strengths and weaknesses. Now, one of the things that they do in this chapter that we're not going to cover is they give a hypothetical dialogue between a uh, a believer who holds to the classical approach and two unbelievers who there's a discussion with, right? And so it's pretty hard to kind of capture that in terms of a present presenting it. And so, you know, get the book if you don't have it. Uh, it's really helpful, I think, uh, in terms of uh, helping you to understand this particular approach. But we won't cover that. We'll just look at uh, there's their kind of summary of the approach and then the strengths and weaknesses that they give us. Uh, they explain this chapter there that, you know, they're summarizing it under two headings, the first portion of it here, uh, meta-apologetics and then apologetics. And they have six specific questions under each of these headings. So six questions under meta-apologetics and six questions under apologetics. And so they're going to then uh, apply this analysis of these questions to this uh, classical apologetics model. So why don't you get us started with meta apologetic questions? Yeah. Yeah. And, and what's great about this too, is, is it does, it, you know, you, you can use this as, as a reference because you have these uh, summaries of it. So once you've read the book uh, in total, then you can go back and get, go, okay, what, what was the evidentialist like six main points again? And so you can flip <laughs> to that section or you can get it through a, a, a different way through this, this dialogue part. And for that one, you'd have to go to a, a Christian apologetics podcast that acts out the, the theology that you're supposed to be doing. That's so right. That's so right. uh, we're, we're, we're not that good of actors. So yeah, yeah. we're not actors at all. <laughs> <laughs> right. <laughs> right. 
So uh, we start off with the uh, meta apologetic questions and they say that they uh, deal with the assumptions or approaches taken by apologetic method to the, re to the relationship between apologetics and various areas of kinds of knowledge. So in chapter five, we considered the approach taken in classical apologetics to epistemology, which is of course the theory of knowledge, how we know our things that we know or claim that we know. Then there's uh, theology, philosophy, science, history, and experience. And so here, we're going to summarize those things so that we can uh, uh, have a good understanding of what was said, uh, what are the basic premises, and then we can look at the strengths and weaknesses from there. So again, it's a really good um, uh, codification of, the, the, of, of everything that's been talked about before in, in, in a good summary, and then uh, we can uh, move on to our analysis of it. Yeah, good. All right. So the first thing then is the epistemological question. And basically this question is, on what basis do we claim that Christianity is true? What's the basis to show or the claim that Christianity is true? And so for classical apologetics, the emphasis, as we have seen in previous uh, uh, you know, uh, discussions, is logic. Why? In its defense of the Christian faith as a form of knowledge. So classical apologetics wants to say, hey, look, it's logic that is the basis for how we determine the truth of Christianity. In fact, any claim. Right. So logic is what classical apologetics uh, emphasize with regard to the basis of uh, uh, Christianity being true. Now, you might say, well, duh, that seems, you know, pretty straightforward. <laughs> but what we'll see as we get into some of the others is this is not necessarily um, the basis that other approaches use, right? Right, right. So it might be, it might be talked about, it might be talked about as important. But uh, uh, for the classicalists, this this is the, the big emphasis. This is what they're going to uh, constantly go back on uh, as their touchstone of 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 uh, the distinctions between them and the others. All right, good. All right, and then the second question, and remember there are six of these here. So the second question is, what is the relationship between apologetics and theology, right? So theology is kind of the study of God kind of thing. And classical apologetics typically regard the intellectual discipline of apologetics, notice this, as in some sense preceding theology. So Apologetics comes before theology is what uh, the they're suggesting the classical uh, approach is. So um, apologetics seeks to defend the basic principles and assumptions of Christian uh, theology. So it's you know it's kind of foundational. It precedes theology, and it attempts to explain why we ought to believe in the Christian faith as revealed in Scripture and practice in the Christian Church. So uh, basis of truth, logic. Uh, the relationship between apologetics and theology, apologetics comes first as establishing a foundation for theology, according to the classical approach as they presented. Right, right. And we're, we're not getting strengths and weaknesses yet. So, OK, let's, let's hold on. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> All right. Well, third, uh, we look at how they uh, engage in philosophical defense of the Christian faith. Well, classical apologist has the most positive view of philosophy in general and even a non-Christian philosophy of the four approaches to apologetics that we'll be looking at. Classical apologists tend to see a great deal of overlap in subject matter and method between apologetics and philosophy. In fact, uh, they're almost so parallel that uh, it would be almost hard to distinguish uh, sometimes between the two. 
Yeah, yeah. In fact, some of them would suggest that you probably should uh, at least take a philosophy course in order to do well at apologetics, something like that, right? Yeah. All right. And then number four, the fourth question is, can science be used to defend uh, the Christian faith? Now, again, you know, if you're saying, well, wait, you want a defense of the Christian faith, of course you should use science. And we're going to see as we go throughout, you know, this book that some um, uh, uh, positions are don't necessarily, uh, you know, agree with that. But for the classical apologist, uh, you know, even though they take a, a cautiously positive approach to the findings and theories of science. Still, they regard modern developments in science, especially in cosmology, as encouraging confirmation of key aspects of the Christian theistic world, right? So notice, uh, for instance, William Lane Craig uses a big bang cosmology to help, uh, you know, uh, uh, defend his uh, Kalam cosmological argument, right? He also uses uh, you know, a form of the teleological argument, the anthropic form of the teleological argument to help defend his uh, Kalam cosmological argument. And so for this approach, right, for classical approach, um, science is useful in defending the Christian faith. Mm-hmm. Yeah, even even Craig has has gone on to at least affirm in theory, uh, multiple worlds uh, a theory, um, which, uh, uh, you know, has has been almost used for the purposes of uh, allowing the factors for evolution to to not reach uh, one over infinity and therefore being impossible. <laughs> so you just create infinity worlds and you say, oh, well, out of infinity worlds, this one's infinity over infinity, which gets you one. Therefore, evolution is possible. But he'll grant and say, OK, let's grant all these multiple worlds. Well, God has to be a God over all these multiple worlds. And so, um, you know, to, to a certain extent, uh, he'll he'll for the, for the very least, he'll grant a certain um, major movements within the scientific community and then argue um, uh, for the existence of God from there and saying, uh, if this is true, then God still has to exist because he is God. And so uh, what can we know uh, about God based on our scientific observations? So he has done that in the past. All right. And then the fifth one, can the Christian faith be supported by historical inquiry? Well, the main concern that classical uh, apologists have regarding history is to show that true knowledge of the past is possible. They admit that the competing worldviews and other factors tend to skew our perceptions of the past. And for this reason, they typically conclude that an accurate view of history, especially with regard to the significance of past events, requires adherence to a true worldview. So uh, uh, here's the, the second step in their approach. You know, the first one is to, 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 to reason and logic and, and view the scientific possibility of there being a creator, of, of, of God being uh, 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 possible. Um, from the apologetic, our theology flows, and then uh, we say, okay, well, has God entered into history at any point in time where we can know him? And of course, they're going to say yes, because they're well, Christian apologists, and Christian apologists, uh, it's it's in the name Christ, and so we're going to uh, hang our hats on uh, Jesus actually existing him performing miracles, uh, him uh, uh, living for a certain number of years, uh, interacting with the community around him, and then ultimately uh, being betrayed, uh, uh, dying on the cross, uh, being buried, and then ultimately resurrecting. And 
from the resurrection have interactions with people. And so again, we'll, we'll tie in uh, this portion a lot more with our, our uh, uh, second method, of course, uh, with the evidentialist. Um, but here, um, uh, the, the focus on uh, history being known and knowable is, is something that classical apologists uh, will also focus greatly on. So if you tend to have someone who may not uh, be your cup of tea for the, uh, the philosophy aspect, the historical aspect is still uh, available as as a, uh, a work in progress for uh, people that will still hold to the classical model. Yeah, good. All right. And then the final question, the sixth question uh, with regard to uh, meta apologetics here is, how is our knowledge of Christian truth related to our experience, right? So classical apologists do not place obviously heavy emphasis on arguments from experience. However, they do contend that the commonality of religious experience and the virtual universality of the religious impulse prove there's a transcendent reality toward which human beings uh, incorrigibly yearn. In other words, you know, if we have this need for this kind of experience, then the, what we find in the world is usually the things that we you know, yearn for and need and desire are available kind of thing, right? And so to deny the existence of uh, the transcendent, uh, they argue one would have to contend that everyone in history who has had a religious experience was totally deceived in thinking that he had experienced transcendent reality. And of course, you know, uh, even though that doesn't prove the existence of God, it's pretty tough to make a claim like that, right? Because you'd have to, uh, you know, try to refute everyone in history who's made right. a claim of a, right. some type of transcendent experience, right? Mm -hmm. <laughs> right. Well, and even social Darwinists uh, do this as well. They take the whole of, of human experience and they say, okay, we, we have these shared uh, common values or, or shared senses, uh, uh, expressions of our uh, natural state. So, uh, you know, uh, again, wh why do we like scary movies or um, why do we get jumpy uh, in, in, a, in a perfectly enclosed house? Uh, uh, it's because uh, uh, the survival trait has been passed down from our ancestors. Th those ones have survived because the, the shaking of the grass was the, the tiger or the snake and they ran away while the other ones didn't. And so those genes passed down to us. And so their experiences looked at from a scientific point of view and saying, okay, what's the reasons for having this? And so for the social Darwinists, they are also using experience to bolster their theory. And so to, to just wipe it out of, of, of the availability of Christianity and say, well, you know, everyone just has th these experiences. You, you can't know that any of them is true. Well, okay, then wipe it all away from psychology and sociology and and uh, 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 parts of science and and do away with it because if you're not going to grant it for this, why are you granting yeah. it for anything else? And so exactly. So yeah. uh, so experience is is maybe downplayed, but uh, there are still other um, avenues that we can we can um, uh, take from a a. Um, a scientific point of view here and say experience does actually matter. Hmm. Okay, so those are the six meta apologetic um, um, overviews for the classical method. And then uh, we moved on to the six kind of questions that all apologists should kind of have an answer to or be ready to have an answer to. Uh, it, it's 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 gonna uh, to, to fill in your circle. And then from there, you can get the minutia of things like, um, you know, is, is, uh, 
is the the cock crowing uh three times or two uh in, in mark and luke or you know you you have those um those really specific questions on on um uh giving an answer for the the hope that you have but here are kind of six apologetic questions that um uh each one uh of our four uh, uh approaches will uh deal with and and determine if they have an answer, uh, don't want to answer, or have a different take on the answer. So apologetic questions deal with issues commonly raised by non-Christian themselves. So we looked in cap chapter six, we considered the approach uh, classical apologists take to answering questions about the Bible, uh, Christianity, and other belief systems, the existence of God, the problem of evil, the credibility of miracles, and the claims of Jesus Christ. And here we summarize the findings. Right. And so the first one, it has to do with the questions about the Bible. So specifically, they, you know, this apologetic question is why should we believe in the Bible? Right. So that's a question that they're going to ask to each one of these four approaches. Well, what does the classicalist say with regard to this? Well, obviously, they're only going to give us a summary here. But basically, they say that in one sense, all Christian apologists urge that the Bible should be believed because it's true. Right. Indeed, because it's God's word of truth. But uh, the four apologetic methods approach this question uh, in different ways. Classical apologists commonly re reserve it for the end of the apologetic task, right? So only after the existence of God and the credibility of his intervening in history and the deity of Jesus Christ have been shown to be true, then uh, does the uh, classical apologist seek to establish the inspiration and authority of scripture. So this question, why should we believe in the Bible? They suggest for the classical apologist comes at the end of showing, first of all, that God exists and that, uh, you know, uh, history with regard to Jesus Christ is credible and he's risen from the dead. And now we can move on to this question about belief in the Bible. So it comes at the end of the apologetic process. Right, right. So, you know, uh, what to apologize with? Well, uh, we'll figure that out with our <laughs> philosophy and then we'll get to the Bible eventually. Uh, again, right. be nice. Be ne nice. Ne negative approaches, <laughs> negative approaches. In, okay. Next episode, next episode. Okay. <laughs> well, then the second question is, uh, do all religions lead to God? And of course, the Christian is going to say, yes, of course, anyway. Well, no, of course not. It's going to be our way and, and the, the, the ones that uh, we claim and that we use the Bible to bolster to say that there's only one way. Well, the classical apologist tends to approach the question of the relevatory character of non-Christian religions by analyzing those religions in terms of their worldviews. Sounds very familiar, but hmm. uh, it sounds like a good approach to me is, is t taking a look at the internal critique of worldviews and then also uh, um, levying external um, uh, charges against it as well. By reducing alternative belief systems to a manageable number, we talked about that. We started with, I think, nine and we went to eight. Then eventually we got down to three and two, we could probably say. Um, at, at the very least. And so uh, uh, refer to uh, past episodes and, and uh, short clips for that. Uh, so we boil down uh, the manageable numbers and then the apologist can analyze the basic worldview options and show that theism is the correct one. Right. So their approach is let's, let's break them down to the basic, you know, three, two, three, and then uh, show that those worldviews don't work and Christianity is the, is the best option. So that's the... <laughs> That's their approach in terms of the question, do all religions lead to God? Uh, the third question here is, how do we know that God exists? 
All right. And so although classical apologists are generally careful to point out that there is no substitute for a personal relationship with God through faith in Christ, and of course the indwelling presence of the Holy Spirit, they do maintain that the existence of God can be demonstrated rationally. And so uh, most of them do not endorse all the traditional theistic proofs. They all endorse one or more of those arguments in some form, right? So they may not endorse all of them, all of these various traditional proofs, right? The cosmological, teleological, uh, uh, you know, the ontological, the uh, moral argument and that sort of thing. They may not endorse all of those, but um, uh, they at least endorse one or more of these arguments in some form to show that God exists. Mm -hmm. Yeah. In fact, uh, someone in our comment section for one of our short clips re replied to an atheist with, I think, 26 different uh, uh, argumentations for uh, the proof of God. And so um, they're out there. And again, uh, uh, you <laughs> might have people that uh, have have picked their favorites because uh, it's it's uh, it's theirs uh, or or it's the, the one that makes the, the best point for the situation that they're in. Uh, again, William Lane Craig's known for. Uh, the Kalam argument, and then uh, uh, switches post to the moral argument. And so uh, that's kind of his uh, his MO there. And so there's a, a whole bunch of different um, uh, 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 rational proofs for God that we can we can go down. Yeah, and, I, and if I remember right, I think uh, Alvin Plantica has a list in one of the backs of his book, maybe God, uh, God in Other Minds, but I'm not sure which book. And he has a list of 25 or 26 arguments for the existence of God in the back of that book. So, it's, yeah, it's kind of interesting. <laughs> yeah, nice. All right, well, why does evil exist if God exists? We, 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 we keep coming back to this question, and the classical apologist usually addresses the problem of evil in its historical historically most influential form as a logical conundrum. How can God be all-powerful and all-loving yet permit evil? That's the question that, uh, that's levied, that's that's the charge. So is he all-powerful? Then why does evil exist if he's all-powerful? Uh, or maybe he's not all-loving, so therefore he doesn't want to be uh, um, uh, allowing for, for evil to, to, to cease. Or maybe he's not all-powerful and he can't, he can't stop it. And so... Uh, that's the conundrum that that's uh, um, permitted uh, in in that line of argumentation. Well, this seems contradictory. Uh, in typically resolved, uh, this this type of contradiction is typically resolved by showing that it is logically necessary, or at least logically possible, for God to permit evil in order for God's loving purpose in creation to be realized. And again, this is something that sounds very close to what we talked about in uh, What About Evil by Scott Christensen. Uh, and he uh, builds it out more and builds it in a, probably a slightly different way than what any classical apologist would take. Uh, tends to be uh, a free will defense. So evil originated because God created beings with the capacity for choice, a free will defense. And, and that free will uh, has to be defined specifically, and we won't get in that here, but uh, there there is usually a distinction made with classical apologists versus um, uh, presuppositionalists or reform people. Uh, and that's a discussion for another time. But evil will be overcome both because God will one day eliminate it and because God will bring about a greater good as a result of the evil he has temporarily permitted. And so uh, it, if, if you just want to boil it down to, to, to one thing that you want to look at, you know, uh, uh, rape, murder, wars. No, look, look at the crucifixion. The crucifixion is the only time that God has been killed 
that he uh, uh, willingly gave himself up to evil people uh, where he could have saved himself and he st still re retains all his power and uh, he uh, does it for a purpose, right? And so uh, it's it's the only time that uh, a, a truly innocent person has stood trial and was ultimately found guilty. So you have um, a deicide right there in, in front of us. And so we can look at the cross and say, there must be a purpose for this. And in fact, once you get to the Bible, uh, for classical apologists, th th there are reasons given. And so mm -hmm. um, uh, we, um, we see this as a tenable position for Christians to hold. Right. And, and, and I think, uh, you know, it should be emphasized that really the free will defense is really uh, one of the most important ones that the classicalists, uh, you know, kind of hang their hats sure. on generally. Right. The greater good uh, um, theodicy is is uh, it is used. But I think the free will defense, if you listen to these folks, the free will defense is, is the one that they uh, they really work through. Yeah. All right. The fifth question says, aren't the miracles of the Bible spiritual myths or legends and not literal facts, right? And so our authors tell us that classical just defend the coherence of belief in miracles. Uh, they attribute modern denials of the biblical miracles to an anti-supernatural mindset that at its root is a product of a non-theistic worldview. So notice we're back to worldviews again, right? <laughs> uh, thus, miracles must be defended primarily by defending the theistic worldview and then showing that they are neither impossible nor implausible given the existence of God. So once you can show that God exists, right, and the theistic worldview is coherent, rational, that sort of thing, then if God does exist, then there is no problem with regard to whether or not he would, uh, you know, perform miracles. And so that's kind of the approach that that they take with regard to miracles. Right. It, uh, it's it's a worldview kind of approach from a theistic worldview. You know, if God exists, then miracles are clearly possible. Right. And miracles are not the, you know, are kind of God working in uh, uh extraordinarily in in um you know in our midst as opposed to how he generally does works ordinarily something right. like that right and and this is where correction of atheists have to uh, take place because it's usually uh talked about as oh it's god upending the the natural order of things yeah, that's right. and the then violation like... of the laws <laughs> right. of logic or, right. or laws of uh nature that right. kind of stuff right. yeah and, not saying that God makes square circles. We're saying that a, a ball <laughs> rolls off the table and you grab it is not a violation of the laws of gravity. It's you entering into the normal course of what would happen in a, 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 a natural way, or here it'd be a supernatural way because you're coming from the outside and you're picking up the ball. And again, um, C.S. Lewis is is uh, talked about here as uh, being a classical apologist. And he, he's the one that I would point to and uh, I've highlighted probably this book more than anything else, but his miracles book talks about this is if you do not grant me the, uh, the possibility of, of miracles, because you know, that miracles aren't possible, then there's no, there's no jumping off point from, from either of our side. And so again, here we want to talk about neutrality of a platform. Uh, but, yeah. uh, but Lewis, Lewis does make a great point of, of just saying, uh, the, the very fact that, uh, you know, you, it's 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 wanting to define God through only the scientific method. Well, if God is supernatural and can't be codified by the scientific method, then you're not really granting me the ability to argue from the position that 
I'm claiming. And so, right. uh, you know, it's the uh, heads you uh, you lose, tails I win type uh, type response here. <laughs> yeah. So read miracles. It's a, it's a, a great book. It um, is good. Yeah. Really good. So. I right, would well, think it's probably one of his most philosophical. Books. Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. yeah it, it, it's, it's, it's laid out really, really well and in Lewis writing form. So you get the best of both worlds there. <laughs> well, why should I believe in Jesus? The classical approach regards faith in Jesus as the core issue in apologetics and great. That's, 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 uh, that's what any Christian wants, no matter where you fall on the apologetic method. We want to say that Jesus is the core issue. Of course. Yes, absolutely. To press the claim of Christ, they urge non-believers to choose how they will view Jesus. Non-believers are told there are only so many alternatives in light of the gospel reports that Jesus claimed to be God. And so here you have, uh, again, Lewis, Lord, lunatic, liar, or I guess doesn't exist, uh, is, is a very minority view. Even Bart Ehrman scoffs at, so, uh, and he holds up his Bible as proof of that, <laughs> which uh, is always fun and ironic. Well, one must believe that Jesus was either wrong about being God or he was right. And if he was wrong, he was either a liar or a lunatic. And if he was right, then he is indeed Lord. Now, you might want to say, well, I'm still going to thumb my nose at uh, this God and I don't want to worship, which is exactly what we are going to say as well. And uh, and so the one explanation that can't stand up to the evidence is that Jesus was merely a great teacher. And so uh, to just go, yeah, he had some decent ideas uh, uh, is is not there because of all the other things that he said about himself that uh, you know, you wouldn't take the the homeless person on the side of the street uh, claiming that the end is near. And he said, we should treat each other with love. Well, you know, I would like to follow that person because I think he's just a good teacher. Uh, well, there are some other things that he says about uh, a, a good many other things that you would not want to hit your wagon to. And so. Right. Yeah. Yeah. Good. All right. So those are the six apologetic questions. These are the six questions that uh, they're going to run through each of these four methods with regard to questions, uh, you know, regarding the the, the uh, Christian faith and that sort of thing. And they've given us now answers from the classical approach. So the next uh, portion in their book that we want to consider is uh, the strengths and weaknesses of this classical approach, right? And so they're going to walk us through uh, these various things. So first, the notable strengths of classical apologetics. And they tell us that classical apologetics, as the name implies, is the approach to apologetics that has the deepest roots in the history of Christian apologetics. And in its explicit modern form, it remains, they suggest, a potent force uh, today. And so they want to give us several strengths that account for this approach perennial uh, success. First, it affirms the universal applicability of reason. One of the great strengths of classical apologetics is its emphasis on the inescapable character of logic and reason. Let me drive under a tunnel. Let me uh, dive to the deepest depths of the ocean. Let me go to the farthest moons. I cannot escape logic and reason. Oh, why? Why is it the case? Well, it's universal. And so where does that universal concept come from? Well, it's just there in the ether, although we can't understand it. Or it's just, it's just how humans relate to things. And, and it's just descriptions that, uh, that help us think, which is uh, something that I uh, came across uh, uh, the other week. So uh, that, that was interesting. Uh, but uh, as Geisler observes, 
unless the law of non-contradiction holds, then there is not even the most minimal possibility of meaning or any hope for establishing truth. This is the the, the absurdity that I always think of in in um, Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy with the impossibility drive. So it <laughs> it creates an impossible thing, and the the ship moves uh, through space with that, and it becomes a a ficus and a whale and you know, all these other things. I mean, th- those are two different parts of the book, but uh, you know it becomes <laughs> these absurd objects like an ice cream cone, and 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 that that's how it transports. Well. Is it is it an ice cream cone or is it a spaceship? Well, if it's yes, then what isn't possible and what is truth and what is anything and you know why are we here and all these uh, all these big big questions become just worthless to even ask if if this if the law of non contradiction just doesn't hold and so right. uh, th- this is uh, the, the the strength of of the universality of uh, applying reason right and so this first. Uh you know, point with regard to the strength then is uh, it affirms the universal applicability of uh, of reason. They tell us that the importance and value of this emphasis on deductive logic is great for the classical approach to apologetics. Logic is an enormously helpful tool for understanding and evaluating arguments, and it's useful um, to the apologists in at least three ways, they suggest. So let me at least give the first one here. It said they tell us that it is indis- an indispensable tool for checking the apologist's own arguments to make sure that they are constructed properly. So that's kind of the first way that this particular, you know, logic uh, is used. Check your own arguments to make mm-hmm. sure that they are indeed uh, correct, that they're constructed uh, properly, right? That they're valid, as it were. Right. Right. Well, and then the second way is that logic is a powerful instrument for exposing problems and arguments used against Christian beliefs. And so, again, you can put it in in the the, the flowchart form and see, oh, uh, you, your 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 unsound logic is here, and this is the reason why. Uh, classical apologists are rightly confident that every argument raised against the Christian faith is, in principle, answerable. Many of these are problematic simply because they are logically invalid. And the value of reason in this regard is heightened because reason, unlike technical information from the sciences or personal religious experience, is, in principle, universally applied to all people. And uh, right. with with science, again, it's it's always changing. Uh, we 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 see the 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 phenomena. We experience uh, variations in the ph- phenomena. Uh, you have people saying, "Oh, it's this," and all the scientific community is saying, "No, that can't be the case. This is the one truth that we always hold to." And then enough people go, "Well, hold on, just a minute. Uh, th- th- this 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 wobbling of the planet shows that there might be a possibility of another planet." No, 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 absolutely not. And then someone looks through uh, their 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 big tube with some uh, mirrors on it, and lo and behold. Behold, we've we found another one, and it now becomes well. Of course, of course, that's the case, and it goes through it again. But now we know that there are only nine planets, and no one will ever say anything different. <laughs> right, except until the next time comes around. <laughs> right. So, so, so logic is 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 not this. Logic, logic will not change. Uh, with that, there, there's, uh, there, it, it's, it's highly unlikely that uh, the overturning of the law of non-contradictions will occur. 
uh, unless you find that uh, other universe that it applies to. And by that time, our universe has been dead because uh, there's another (laughs) universe that has taken over all other universes. That's right. And it's turned to an ice cream cone or something. Right, exactly. All right. So first of all, then, it affirms the universal applicability of reason, right? And this is an an indispensable tool for checking the apologist's own arguments. It's a powerful instrument for exposing problems and arguments used against Christianity. And then thirdly, they tell us that the emphasis on logic is helpful in commending the claims of Christ uh, to intelligent non-Christians. They say that too often unbelievers get the impression that Christianity is an irrational faith that requires people to suspend their critical reasoning uh, faculties. Classical apologists work to overcome this stereotype and to reach out to the educated and intellectually oriented uh, non-Christian with the message that God in, the God in whom we believe is the God of reason and truth, right? So logic is helpful then in commending the uh, claims of uh, Christ to intelligent non-Christians. So this is, uh, they suggest, a strength of the classical approach, this emphasis on you know, the um, universal applicability of reason. Right. Right. And so both Christians and non-Christians alike should stop watching the TV and movies where it says, oh, uh, you know, uh, if you have only science, then what room is there for faith? Faith is this uh, amalgamation of just uh, hopefulness and 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 wishful thinking. And, and we just uh, reach out there with with faith and we just we just let let God do what he wants. And it's just, you know, we, we just have to, to to do that. Well, but what is faith again? Every time that we approach faith in in our catechism with my children, all right, what is faith? Faith is trust, and so we we need to have this non Hollywood defined version of what faith is, and say faith in what? What what is the faith that that we're having? It's not just this say la vie type deal. It's a, a, a trust that God works, is working, and has worked in history and for. Uh, purposes and of course we turn to the Bible for that as as defining what uh, to to exactly have faith in. So so uh, uh, stop 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 watching too many movies. Uh, and and I'll, I'd suggest a good book, but uh, there's a lot of people that uh, don't like it as much. So we'll do that. All right. Well, uh, next uh, it raises awareness of the unavoidable role of worldviews. Unavoidable worldviews. Look at that, classical apologists. We we can talk about these things. It's unavoidable. Well, classical apologists rightfully emphasize that it is impossible to think about the world at large or about facts or experience apart from some worldview, right? We all approach it. We may not codify it. We may not say, oh, I've, I've learned a new piece of information. I'm going to slot it into this portion of my worldview. You just take it in. It's, it's how you experience the world. If, if, if all you do is traffic, work, TV, sleep, you are still existing within a worldview you you've you've built it up in some capacity in some framework uh and it might not be uh the 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 full uh um, breakdown in in logic form but you still hold it and it's unavoidable everyone has one uh the classical apologist recognizes the fact that facts are perceived in accordance with an interpretive framework a fact a way of looking at facts themselves and even of thinking about concepts of facts there's no such thing as a brute fact that exists out in the world it's evidence when it's interpreted and so uh, it says 
this bone in the dirt is something for my theory because this, and it's not, it's not something that can just be uh, wiped away and say, well, I don't, I don't accept this as anything and therefore it doesn't exist. Uh, that, that only facilitates that you're not uh, arguing for a, a, a total completion of your worldview and, uh, or an upending of it. If you find uh, certain uh, uh, interpretations cannot hold uh, because of facts coming in, or you explain it and we can uh, validate it either by an internal critique, which is the best or an external critique and hopefully uh, uh, encourage you to turn over a new leaf and, and uh, 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 break down your worldview and uh, replace it with a better one. All right. So this raising awareness of the unavoidable role of uh, worldviews. Now, they tell us that this emphasis on worldviews is significant and valuable for at least two reasons. First, non-Christians are often unaware that they look at life through a specific set of worldview glasses, right? And so this, uh, you know, making them uh, aware of this can help non-Christians rethink some of their beliefs, right? They're saying, well, this is just the way things are. Well, no, actually, you're looking through it uh, at the world through, uh, you know, worldview glasses. So, and, and so th this emphasis is uh, helps non-Christians, they suggest, to see that. Secondly, non-Christians and Christians alike are often unaware that distinctive Christians' uh, beliefs typically seem odd or even absurd to non-Christians because they do not fit within the non-Christian worldview. And so comparing the two worldviews can help non-Christians recognize the rationality of Christian beliefs given a theistic uh, worldview. All right, and then our uh, third uh, major strength that we're going to talk about uh, recognizes common ground with non-Christians. The third major strength that our authors say uh, that is a strength of the classical approach, its ability to find common ground with non-Christians in the principles of reason and in whatever truths that already believe. Uh, so if uh, reason and logic are universal, then we all experience it. We all have the same uh, ability to grasp it. There might be a uh, uh, difference in understanding or interpretations, but uh, it's, it's, it's uh, like uh, uh, walking uh, in, in air, right? We, we're all walking in the air. Now, some of us could say, oh, there's no air around us. I don't see it, therefore it doesn't exist, but we're all experiencing it in some capacity. And so we have the ability to relate to other people who are walking around or fish in the water or, you know, the, the only f philosophical fish know that they're swimming in water. <laughs> well, in this characteristic, uh, characteristic emphasis, classical apologists show themselves concerned with the practical task of communicating the gospel effectively to people of differing religious and philosophical beliefs. And so to say, that no one can can relate to each other unless if they hold the exact same uh, worldview or evidences or uh, philosophical claims, uh, then uh, we shouldn't evangelize to anybody because uh, no one can be on our level. In fact, it would be difficult to talk to anybody about anything unless they held specifically to the things that we're talking about. And so uh, here it's the communication of the gospel uh, effectively to people of the, these different persuasions that our authors say is a, a big um, uh, strength for this position. Right. And so these three then are the, uh, our book suggests the strengths of this particular uh, classical approach, right? It affirms the universal applicability of reason. It uh, raises awareness of the unavoidable role of worldviews, and it recognizes common ground with non-Christians.
Now, in the next section, what they're going to do here is work us and walk us through potential weaknesses of the classical uh, apologetics. And so perhaps maybe, Patrick, we want to say this next section till next time and uh, so that we can dive in and spend some time in this particular section. That's right. We'll, we'll keep all the positive stuff up front. So we'll, <laughs> we'll, we'll do that. Yeah. All right. So uh, again, uh, came to the cross .com for all your viewing pleasure for full episodes, our past books, uh, uh, anything else that we write or the short clips as well. Uh, YouTube, Rumble and Odyssey, although I think maybe Odyssey is going away soon, but at least YouTube and Rumble are still staying there. And so uh, you can check them out all there. As, uh, also, your uh, favorite podcast catchers, uh, you can go there as well. So uh, we'll say thanks for joining us and we'll see you next time. We'll see you next time.